Um, okay, um, good morning everyone. Um, and uh, it's an extremely interesting day for us. And uh, today we have uh, Professor Rishi Rajamohan talking about Middle East and India's uh, changing geopolitics. And uh, my friend uh, Sirada will make a formal introduction. Let me just make uh, two small observations. And uh, Professor Rajamohan uh, was the first person to recognize the implications of the end of the Cold War. Before anyone in India could actually have an idea of what's going on, he was the first one to smell, okay, this is going to be a new international order. He was the first one. The second one is, you know, unlike much of the Indian elite, he doesn't hesitate to use the word Middle East. I think these are the two things which actually make me extremely uh, fond of him and his writing. And uh, we go back almost uh, in the 80s. It's an ancient history. But what makes this interesting is ever since we conceived the Middle East Institute, he has been a pillar of strength for us. And I think that gives me more happiness to have a Professor Rajamohan to speak to us today. For the rest of the proceedings, can I ask my friend, uh, Dr. Siradharadatta, to take over as a moderator. Hi, thanks, Kumar. Um, this is such a pleasure to be here and um, to be able to introduce Professor Raja Mohan again, somebody who I've known been over the years and been so supportive always. Uh, the crowd, of course, knows him very well, but let me just do the formality and introduce him very briefly. As you know, he's right now the director Institute of South Asian Studies. Earlier, he was professor of South Asian Studies at JNU and also at the Raja Ratnam School of International Studies. Um, Professor Mohan has been associated with a number of think tanks in Delhi, including IDSA and Center for Policy Research, as well as ORF. He was also the founding director of Carnegie India, and uh, which has been doing absolutely great and contributing to the policy uh, issues of India. Uh, Professor Mohan was also the Henry Alfred Kissinger Chair in International Affairs at the United States Library of Congress, Washington, DC. Uh, from 2009 to 2010. Uh, he's, of course, one of the leading commenters on Indian foreign policy, and he regularly writes a column for Indian Express. Uh, Professor Mohan uh, has a master's degree in nuclear physics, and I'm not sure how many of you know that, but also and a, with a PhD in international relations. Uh, amongst his recent books are Modi's World, Expanding India's Sphere of Influence, uh, which was 2015, India's Naval Strategy and Nation uh, Security, which was Lao in 2016, uh, which is co-edited piece of his, work of his. His other books, of course, include the very well-known Samundra Manthan, uh, which I know is often quoted at VIF, so I keep hearing that about the Sino-India rivalry in the Indo-Pacific, which is, again, something which is very, very uh, relevant uh, to the kind of the geopolitical situation we are in just now. Power alignments in Asia, China, India, and the United States, um, Impossible allies, nuclear India. And again, I remember that because uh, that and crossing the Rubicon, these are the days when at IDSA, there was so much of discussion around these uh, works of uh, Professor Rajamohan. So it's like a huge pleasure to be here to able to listen to him. Let me, by just way of introduction, say a few words. Um, I mean, I know we are all here to listen to Professor Rajamohan, but let me take a minute to say that for even someone like me who really does not follow the region closely, I can see that India's uh, relationship has really grown in depth and range over the years with this Middle East region. Uh, it is, of course, we all know is an important strategic region for India. And, you know, we've often, often heard about the deep civilization contacts and all the cultural connect and all of that. But I think the geopolitical and the geoeconomic significance of the region has lent many contours to the growing relationship. I mean, we've always known about the traditional energy trade but now includes various other aspects, which include military and security ties. Uh, in fact, just now, just before the meeting started, I was reading an Alawite piece, and again, the Middle Institute website, where he often refers, he actually referred to the MOUs, several MOUs that India signed with many of the countries in the region during 2019. And he says how, you know, there's a huge range that has been included, which of course includes health and medical science and education and research as well. Um, but I think one thing that was very, very critical, which, I mean, for again, somebody who doesn't follow the Middle East, was when I saw Saudi Arabia and UAE uh, give a very strong support to India when it revoked Article 370. It somehow lent a belief that, you know, India was now looked really as a credible friend and power and not 
you know, somebody just who was there to serve your economic interests or something like that. And I think the relationship has picked up a lot of weight about that. Um, I know that Professor Rajamo is going to talk about the entire dynamics in his typical inimitable style. But the fact right now in this COVID phase where India, I think, is to receive, and I'm not sure about the figures, but about 40 billion in remittance, um, the fact that all that is going to change. So how India manages its ties and how India navigates the very difficult days ahead is something that we're all waiting to hear. Uh, over to you, Professor Raja Mohan. It's such a pleasure again. Uh, just a very small request to all the participants. Just to save time, we request everybody to put in their uh, questions and comments in the uh, chat box so that it's easier to handle for Raja Mohan at the end of his talk. Over to you. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you, Sridhar, for that uh, generous introduction. And thank you, Kumar, for inviting me. Uh, it's really, uh, you know, I want to congratulate you for setting up this institute uh, and really running it entirely on a personal team and uh, with your students and other colleagues uh, uh, in SIS. So it's really remarkable achievement uh, uh, in, and, and especially in the context where the Middle East and its alliance for India uh, is growing uh, rapidly. And it's a pleasure to be back with Sri Radha. We had the pleasure of hosting her some time ago uh, in, in Singapore. So we look forward to more collaboration with you uh, as well. So uh, when, you know, one of the reasons for the MEI's success, I think, is uh, Kumar's uh, persuasive power, which is what uh, kind of let me accept in a moment of weakness that I'll speak on uh, on the subject, which is you know geopolitics of India and the Middle East. Uh, but moment I agreed to him, I've been regretting it since because the complexity of the subject and the potentially the, the very controversial uh, elements involved in in the way uh, we have debated about it in the past, and even uh, a hesitation to even to debate the elements of it uh, in, in in the public domain. So that's been a long and complicated story, but but having agreed now, let me uh, focus on, uh, you know, just two, I'll, my presentation will be in two parts, and I think in the first, I'll briefly mention the broad, the geo change in the way India thinks about the world, that is the geopolitical change in India's perspective, and then go to the second part uh, and make uh, five propositions on what the Middle East might mean for India uh, at a time when India's own uh, worldview, its engagement to the world, and its relative weight in the world uh, has also significantly uh, changed. So, so on the first part, on the, uh, the nature of India's uh, geopolitics, uh, we, you know, it's all of us has been the part of the debate for our generation, at least as we grew up in the last few, last 30 years, uh, extraordinary change in the way India dealt with the world. And I think to summarize broadly those changes, while we had a contestation over how deep and how significant those changes are. Uh, today, I think there's a far fewer uh, people who question those, uh, those changes. So the three broad themes of change, one is how we think about the great powers. Uh, in fact, uh, when we were in JNU, the term was not even used. <laughs> uh, so it was generally, there were superpowers, there was a developing world, there was North, there was South. So there was no uh, tradition of debating the world uh, in terms of the, uh, how the great powers deal with it and how India uh, should, should deal with them. I think to summarize what has changed, I think uh, it is from the resistance and contestation with the West uh, as being a dominant theme of India's post-war, uh, you know, post-independence geopolitics. Today, uh, the cooperation with the West uh, has become a very important theme. Uh, and I think uh, it's seen that intensify in the recent days, but the fact is from where we were in the, in the, in the 60s and 70s uh, to uh, the expanded engagement, and growing trust in terms of how we uh, think about the West, I think it's a, it's a huge uh, change. Uh, uh, linked to that is also, I, I think, the, the change in India's own weight in the international system. From the framing of India as a developing country, as, uh, as a leader of the South, to one where today India is the fifth or sixth largest economy, uh, depending on the dollar exchange rate of the day. But the fact is, uh, that I think has begun to you know, compel us to think in ways that are very different from the way we thought about ourselves or foreign policy in the world. So there I would say uh, there is a shift to greater pragmatism, uh, greater self-interest uh, compared to the, the ideological and, uh, you know, grandiose framing of the issues uh, in the 60s and 70s. 
The second, I think, big change that has happened is, is about the is about the neighborhood, uh, that how we think about the region. Uh, there was a time when the word regional integration was not used in the MEA because largely we don't, you know, we are, we are sovereign states. We don't integrate. We call that cooperate. Uh, that it is sovereign entities cooperating. But the very term, even regionalism, was a taboo. And even when SARC started in the mid '80s, it was really not you know, not great stuff was happening. Uh, the idea that we were deeply suspicious of what others might do and how it was probably a plot against us, the SARC. But today, I think we think about the region where India has a large growing economy uh, can indeed lead the integration of the region. So, so that's a big change, how we uh, think about our region. Uh, it's, it's a, so that is a, a big change that, that we're seeing unfolding. The third change is the, uh, the conception of what began to be called the extended neighborhood. And I think uh, it was Mr. Gujral who first used the term in recent, uh, recent times. But it's really, uh, put another way, it was really all your space beyond the subcontinent and, uh, and in the Indian Ocean Asian context, because we always had debates about Asia right from before independence and after independence. But this framing of this as a, as a neighborhood that is just outside your neighborhood uh, with which you need to have more uh, exchanges, integration, uh, with starting with the Lucas policy, uh, and then uh, the framing of the Indian Ocean policy, which is again, uh, it's interesting when Mr. Modi made the speech in 2015. I mean, I was trying to see if any other PM had made a speech on Indian Ocean. There wasn't any. That actually, uh, that we just didn't think of it as a space the way we think about it today. So I think that was a, a big shift. Uh, and, and how we think about the Indian Ocean. Partly, uh, we were the economic reform and liberalization and globalization of India made the seas far more important. Uh, and therefore, the conception of, uh, you know, there is a maritime space that we need to deal with as opposed to merely the territorial frontiers in the north and to the northwest. So that change, I think, you're beginning to see, still full, not complete. Uh, so, but, but is nevertheless, uh, last 30 years, we've seen a significant change. So I think this sets the stage to when we talk about the extended neighborhood, of course, the Gulf and the Middle East are very, very, uh, very important uh, parts of it. So as, uh, as uh, uh, Kumar said, you know, I keep saying Middle East, my editors in the Indian Express, uh, most of the time they try to change it to West Asia, but I keep telling them, look, uh, Middle East calls itself Middle East, why are you so obs obsessed with giving your version to them? Uh, so, but anyway, but it's kind of uh, it's a debate that goes on. And even foreign office uh, till the mid-50s, uh, I'm sure you guys know better than they were actually, it was called the Middle East, uh, that it was only somewhere in the, in the late 50s or early 60s, that actually the designation, uh, official designation changed from the Middle East to, to, to West Asia. But it doesn't matter what we, what we call it in the end. Uh, but I, what I want to, as I said, I'll focus on uh, five propositions. But I'm, I, I want to say something here, that to think about a future in the Middle East, uh, we need to think about a past that predates independence. There's far too much the assumption generally in discourse on Indian foreign policy that everything began in 1947 or 1946 when Nehru was the vice chairman of the interim government. Uh, Nehru probably had an epiphany. Uh, he had a revelation. Uh, Non-alignment came to him. And that's the story, the great story of Indian foreign policy begins with the AIR speech in September 6, 1946, or that was the beginning of Indian foreign policy. But I think that fundamentally ignores a far deeper story that the government of India as an entity existed before independence, that the government of India, uh, the Raj, if you will, or the, the, the British Raj, or before that, the company Raj, both conducted foreign relations. That is both within the subcontinent. That's how the the foreign office's origin goes back to what was called the foreign and political department that dealt with the princes in the subcontinent and later with the princes around us. So the, the, the engagement of India with the Middle East goes, dates back to independence, predates independence. And I think some of those features, not that we can go back to you know, the colonial period, but it's important to see the strands that existed because I think some of the ideas endured. Uh, today, when we say India's influence stretches from the Suez to the Malacca, that was not, Gujral didn't invent it, or George Fernandez didn't invent it. It was inherited from the Raj. That was the sphere of influence of India, British India. And I think 
uh, a, that it is what you are discovering. So, so I think it's important to know, even just for purely academic reasons, how India engaged with the rest of the world, with the Middle East uh, before uh, before independence. So, uh, so I would say, see the the five themes I said. I'll speak about the changing Middle East. I mean, the first is about the about the legacy of the Raj. I mean, that 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 it is uh, easy to forget. Uh, how significant the Middle East was. Uh, one is the, uh, shall we say, the, the, the story of the great game that today, which is a term that is largely used in relation to uh, the, uh, in relation to Afghanistan actually, but it's actually uh, also deals, it's also linked to the, uh, the evolution of India's Middle East policy. That in fact, if you go back to the debate in the, uh, the story of course begins with, uh, when Napoleon lands in Egypt uh, and uh, claims that he's going to be a great champion of the Muslims uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the Muslim world. Uh, the, the fear that a marching Napoleon might show up in India was seen as a fundamental threat to the Indian security, security of the British India at the time under the company. That, so therefore, how you deal with that threat, uh, where might you have to stop Napoleon, assuming he because Napoleon himself had plans to advance to India. He was engaging Tipu Sultan. The whole beginnings of the how the great power rivalry in Europe was beginning to have an impact. And the key to that was how do you control the intervening space between Europe, the Mediterranean, and India? That is, controlling the routes of entry into India and creating structures of influence and special relationships was the one of the most important challenges as British saw it in, uh, in when Napoleon showed up there. And that's when the debate on great game in India, I mean, begins between the Cox's brothers uh, the, the, in, in Bombay and the Lawrence brothers in Punjab, the idea of how we should cope with a potential hostile European power uh, coming to India. So, so the idea of great power rivalry and what it does to India, the great game concept was very much there. And I think it, it reappears in different forms. And I think now uh, we think of China as the power coming from the East. But the fact is that outside powers, when they come here, what, what kind of a dynamic that it produced between them and the, the sovereign uh, of India, irrespective of who the nature of the regime is, the Indian sovereign uh, will have to deal with the rival powers showing up and how that plays out uh, is, a, is, a, is a major theme. The, the second uh, uh, element of the Raj that continues is the notion that you know India is the security provider that, that uh, today we have rediscovered that word but the fact was if you go back uh, through the uh, 19th and the early till the 19th till 1950 that is 150 years it was the Indian army that before the Americans showed up in this part of the world the idea that someone had to stabilize the region to use the current jargon of if you have anybody from seaport they can tell you stabilization operations peacekeeping operations uh, international peace and security, blah, blah. So that, that stuff was being done by the Indian Army. That the, while the Royal Navy took care of the maritime side, it was the Indian Army uh, that, that was deployed to different corners to, to stabilize the regions, depending on what the issue was. I mean, uh, as, the, as Kumar and your colleagues will know, Indian Army was in, uh, is in uh, Egypt for a long time. Uh, it was part of the First World War, a major component of the First World War was the Indian Army. And so in the in the Second World War too. So in Iraq, at least, there were repeated Indian intervention of the Indian Army. So the Indian Army, whether you say, look, it's good or bad, I'm not getting into saying it's good or bad, but the fact is the Indian military capability resources were critical for maintaining the stability of the Indian Ocean. How we do it, who does it, I mean, that's a story, I mean, depending on who the sovereign of India might be. But the fact is, objectively speaking, if you look at the last 200 years, uh, I think the, the weight has not changed. And I think that's, that's going to come back in a big way. Second is the, uh, also relating to the Raj Lacy third, I mean, which, which is really that India was the center of globalization in the Indian Ocean. That the British Raj and the economy, that 19th century itself was a great era of globalization when European capital expanded into, into Asia and it created a whole network of institutions, structures. Today we talk about China and this great BRI. The Suez Canal was dug by the Europeans. I mean, if you can think of BRI projects, I mean, there's still not one like the Suez Canal, which fundamentally breaks through, uh, you know, almost like Moses, uh, you break up 
Mediterranean, connect Mediterranean to the, uh, to, the, to, the, to the Red Sea. So Panama Canal, of course, are the great cities of Indian Ocean today. We talk about uh, Aden, you know, Bombay, Calcutta, Madras, Singapore, Hong Kong. These are all products of the British uh, and the European capital expanding into this part of the world. So Chinese in some ways are replicating it, but the fact is India was, and, and the, it was not, everything was not run from London. In fact, Bombay, Calcutta, Madras were not post offices of, of London. In fact, the Raj had agency of its own that the security, the economic factors working, that there was an autonomy. So if you want to, we can use strategic autonomy. We had strategic, Raj had strategic autonomy from London uh, in doing a lot of things. In fact, if those of you read uh, the book by Robert Blith, it talks about empire of the Raj. That the Raj had an, you know, Raj was an empire in itself. It was part of the British Raj. But the Raj had an empire, uh, but especially in the Middle East, uh, in Oman, uh, in the Gulf, where the, most of the, uh, the, 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 the crucial states were run from uh, Bombay province, that, that the linkages, that, that the Raj was taking responsibility to run a lot of the political, economic dimensions. So, so I think that's, a, uh, we tend in, in terms of narrowly seeing it as a colonial versus post-colonial, we tend to miss uh, some of the significant aspects of the relative autonomy or the strategic autonomy of the Raj uh, from, from London. So, so that's a huge, important thing to remember. And I think many of these issues come back today as we think of India as a security provider, India as a center of globalization, and India as a part of the great game with the other powers. So all those issues are going to come back for us as we look to the Middle East. The second question, I mean, I think this is a, a, a sensitive question, that, that it is the nature of the relationship between India's internal politics, if you will, or internal cleavages, if you will, and the link between that, the security of the subcontinent, and the relationship to the Middle East. So if you want to simplify it, I mean, so you can put it as a Muslim question, for lack of a better word, that part of the problem when Napoleon landed in Alexandria, liberate India from and that it will work with the dispossessed rulers of India to fight back. Now, this is, I mean, not that you know, Napoleon was fond of the Muslims or he had any, uh, you know, I, the, the idea was that, look, that there is resentment against British domination of India. The old rulers are looking for support and that any potential rival to British presence in India can use India's internal cleavages to destabilize British control over India. I mean, as simple as that. I mean, I think uh, that, that story, of course, is much wider. Those of you know the history of the Middle East, how both uh, later the story repeats itself under the Germans, where Britain and Germany were using Imperial Germany, were using supporting different Muslim groups. Uh, the Germans were supporting the Turks, the British were supporting the Arabs. So the play of using the ethnic communities of the region to destabilize each other's control over the colonial territories was part of the great game. And I think that was very much a part of the story. So it was not separate from the great game, that, that India's internal divisions could be exploited by, by outsiders. So that's, that was the story from, uh, from, the, from, from the beginning. And I think there's, there's no uh, escaping that. Second, but there was also the Muslim question played the other way as well. That is, we go back to the Congress party's resolution, the Indian National Congress, uh, some of the earliest resolutions complained about Indian use of Indian armed forces in the Middle East. That is essentially saying, why are Indian troops being used against fellow religionists in the Middle East? So that was an argument that was put across uh, right from the beginning. In the Congress, we're not talking about the Congress party today. These are the suited booted types with pinstripes, uh, Paka Indian uh, brown sahibs. But the question of what should be India's relationship to what happens in the Middle East, go back to Gandhi, Khilafat. So the, the dynamics of what was happening in the Middle East were of concern to the Indian population, of critical sections of the Indian elite, and that complicated how the Raj responded or the, uh, the, the governments responded. And I think then the same problem appears in a different form uh, under the, the problem of partition. Uh, once the subcontinent is divided along religious lines, then the nature of the relationship of the religious division of the subcontinent and its relationship to uh, the Muslim-dominated the, uh, of the Middle East 
how that plays out has been a, a significant factor. And I think it was a deep concern for India that Pakistan was pre presenting itself as a champion of the Muslims. It is a, uh, you know, cause of the Muslim cause. It is a Pakistan was an ideological state meant to secure the interests of the Muslims. And how independent India, secular independent India, a nationalist India tried to neutralize it by using the arguments of anti-colonialism, solidarity. So, so that tussle has continued, I think, in different forms. That how does India, uh, a, a, a multi-ethnic, multi-religious India, deal with a largely mono-ethnic uh, Middle East? That tension uh, between the two and the partition actually sharpens those divisions. Uh, that 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 has been an enduring problem. So it's reflected in uh, in many of your debates uh, how you deal with the various countries. Are we for secularists? Are we for, uh, you know, we don't like uh, conservatives or religious people. We like the guys in suits. We don't like the guy wearing, uh, you know, Arab dress or Iranian dress. So so I think that that problem has not disappeared. I, mean, I think even today, uh, it comes itself in different ways. Uh, there are some countries which call themselves the moderate uh, Arab states, the Saudis or Egyptians or the, or the, or the UAE. And Iran, which sees itself as a, as a state that is fundamentally seeking more radical transformation or the brotherhood that seeks radical transformation of the region to one, a group of states that call itself moderate, uh, conservative, but moderate. And that, so that, that, that fault lines will continue to, to challenge us in terms of how we think about the region. And unfortunately for India, I think the problem is that we saw it so much in terms of an anti-imperialist lens after independence. It was all about the West American, the bad Americans versus the good Arabs. Or, or simplifying the region's contradictions, that there was only one problem in the Middle East, which was the Palestinian problem. There was no other problem. That rest of the region was happy, they would have lived happily ever after. So the, the you know, what I used to see in January as well, anybody came, we said, look, yeah, it's, it's really solved the Palestine problem, Middle East will be a great place, that there is no... Uh, that, and when terrorism began in the 70s, we said, terrorism, it's not really a problem. It's really, you know, solve the Palestine problem, terrorism will disappear. Well, today, of course, uh, we don't like those kind of arguments who say solve Kashmir, terrorism will disappear. But, but the fact is, that was our line of argumentation. I mean, I'm not, it's not a blaming anyone or the perception of what the problem was in the Middle East, that the Middle East was deeply cleavaged, that there are multiple ethnicities, even within sects, groups, you know, ethnic communities, and that the contradictions between them are go beyond the contradiction between the colonial rulers and the, and the local populations. But the defining the region in north versus south terms or east versus west terms fundamentally prevented us from seeing the far more complex dynamics that existed. But it's only in the last few years that we, you know, finding ways of dealing with it rather than the traditional simplification of the region's contradictions through a lens of uh, anti-imperialism or anti-colonialism. Anti so, so that was a huge problem. And I think the problem today unfolds itself. So because uh, today, uh, anyone looking at the region, like all of you do in the center, uh, the contradiction between the West and the Middle East is very different today than it was then. Uh, the Gulf Arabs cooperate with the, with the Israelis. Uh, that, you know, the, to anybody who can, you know, maybe... Kumar can draw a map of who is aligned with whom in this region. Turkey and Iran are on one side, but they're opposed to each other in some other place. Uh, Yemen, you, you, you kind of talk about this whole place as a uh, messy, complex, multiple forces competing with each other. Uh, this could not be shoehorned into a simple anti-colonial, anti-imperial, anti-Western paradigm uh, that was very convenient for us in the past. And that, you know, whether the Professional diplomats, how they saw it is not the issue. How the larger political class saw it, that how they define that if Saddam Hussein is against, against the U.S., we are with Saddam Hussein. If uh, Iranian clerical regime is against the U.S., we are with the Iranian clerical regime. So, so the, I think the, the weight of the need to be seen as being anti-imperialist uh, in the Middle East, uh, of course, created huge problems. Uh, but it's only in, in recent years that we're shaking, uh, breaking out of that. Then there is the question of economic interdependence. This is the or the fourth point I wanted to make uh, in the, the that as we know that the interdependence, uh, as I said, India was the center of the globalization in the 19th century, and much of the interdependence remained well into the 70s. Uh, the Reserve Bank of India is to print the Gulf rupee. It was India that walked away from it. 
uh, today, of course, we, our heart burns when we think about, you know, the American Chinese bringing the currency into the region, yuan going to be globalized. Uh, rupee was already well-established currency in the Gulf. It was a well-established currency in Singapore and many other places. But India's internal orientation largely meant we pulled back. That, that it was a conscious Indian decision to separate ourselves. But the problem was even we tried to separate the logic of geography, the logic of economy forced us, banged our heads together with the Gulf. We said, well, we are separate, we are socialist, but then oil happened, oil happens, they need labor, where do they get the labor? They get to the labor surplus South Asia and within which India is the preferred partner. I remember when I was in Jainu, first time trying to get a passport, went to, in 74, to, to the Shastri Bhavan where they used to post off. There was not a single person looking for a passport. It was like you could walk in and walk out. There's nothing. Two years later, you try to actually travel abroad, go for a... It was like jammed with people trying to get passports. So it's a dramatic change in spite of the fact India pulled back. Look, we're not interested in Gulf rupee. We don't want to deal with you. Sell us the oil. That's fine. The rest of it, you take care of yourself. We are autonomous. We are socialists. We are independent. But the force of circumstance locked our heads together. And we've seen that the logic the structure of that interdependence of India's dependence on energy, uh, their dependence on South Indian labor, uh, and now as a market for Indian goods exports. So it's a dramatic transformation that took place. And it is really a similar phenomenon existed before independence. It's really in spite of our willingness to shoo it away, that interdependence comes back. So the question is now, how do you deal with the interdependence in the future? What happens if the oil economy goes down? How do you deal with the new Middle East beyond labor exports and import of oil? This is where I think the region is investing in alternative technologies and energies. The region is looking to develop technological innovation. So I think India still has options to, to work with, provided we pay attention to the new possibilities in the Gulf, rather than simply seeing it as an as a, as a, as a old framework. So, so I think uh, the nature of that interdependence will change, but interdependence is not going to disappear from uh, the, the structure of the relationship between India and the Middle East, especially between uh, India and the Gulf. So the final point I want to talk about is the, when we talk about India's geopolitics, it's a question of uh, use of force. Does India use force? As I said, look, under the Raj, I mean, India was the security provider uh, for the region. And then the Gulf became independent uh, in 1971. Uh, Oman, first thing they did was come to India and say, look, give us a security treaty. You know, the British are going, so could you give us security? Of course, we didn't, we didn't do such things. This was bad, imperial, terrible stuff the big powers did. We don't do. We are nice people. So India did sign a, a security cooperation agreement with Oman, but really there was no interest in security cooperation because that was seen as a... So in spite of the political resistance, there's actually... Uh, with Iraq, there was a lot of training. So we did a lot of stuff like training in Indian Air Force. I was, you know, I know those of you remember Commodore Jesse Singh used to talk about his time in Iraq. Indians went to train the whole lot of people. So there was the connection still. And if you look at even before that, uh, India and Egypt tried to jointly develop a fighter aircraft. They tried to develop a, you know, jet engine. Of course, with some hints uh, felt from German friends from who ran away to Brazil in the in the in the Cold War. But that's a different story. But the fact is. The defense was very much an integral component. But yet, we today, when you talk about India playing a role, I mean, the recoiling at the suggestion that India must play a security role. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the 2003 Iraq invasion, the Americans were very keen to have an Indian troops, so two divisions of troops, uh, a big debate. Uh, the cabinet almost agreed, but last minute they pulled out. And then when the Congress came into power, there was a deep resistance to being engaged with the security politics because. The, the principles of non-intervention, we don't get into other people's conflicts. But I think as, as the Middle East uh, gets into even a bigger problems, and the Americans retrench from the region, uh, how long can India escape using its military and force to secure its interests in the Gulf? We've seen the Chinese have got the first military base uh, in Djibouti, which is part of the Gulf, Middle East, Horn of Africa. Uh, we have the Turks, the UAE, the Saudis, the Iranians, everybody's intervening and everybody else is internal affairs. But this dream that somehow there is this non-intervention as the norm, it's a nice thing we say in seminars, but, but it's the, if you look at the Middle East today, there's no better example than, it's not the great powers who are intervening. Uh, Russians, of course, are still muddling around. 
after withdrawing from the region, you have the regional powers, Turkey, Iran, Saudi, UAE, actively intervening in each other's internal affairs. So, so military force is being used. So what do we do sitting next door? Say tomorrow if Qatar or somebody, I'm just saying, so UAE comes to us and say, look, can you help us secure? Do we say, sorry, you know, we're not going to do it for you because we also like Iran and we also got Qatar as our friend. Everybody's our friend. We are multi-aligned. We can't do it. But what we've seen historically, great powers, of course, you have to play all sides. You have to engage everyone. Uh, but we are using force in a non-combat way, where to, to pull back our people, the evacuation operations uh, in, uh, repeatedly uh, to rescue Indians from uh, crisis points in the Middle East. Last 15 years, there have been a series of operations. So I think this problem, does India play a role in the security of the Middle East? Or is it only about oil, labor, and good talk? Or is there going to be, uh, when the region comes to you and says, look, can you help us on the security front? Do we do it? So I think this is a big, big debate. We've not had this debate. Uh, I think that problem uh, of, of how do we think about India's role in a regional, when the regional security order is breaking down, uh, is going to be a big one. And, and then linked to that, of course, is how do we, who, do we, who are our partners in the Middle East? Do we work with the French to secure parts of the Gulf? Do you work with the Americans to do something? Or do we going to join the Russians in their interventions in the region? So, so I think the issues of who our friends are, who our partners are, uh, what is the level of intervention that we can anticipate? This is a huge subject. Uh, I think all those who do Middle East and uh, military and military policy, uh, it'll be worth looking into. So, so if we conclude, then let me conclude by saying uh, there has been a dramatic transformation. Uh, I think the importance, the centrality of the Middle East beyond the, the question of domestic politics, uh, because there the region has never made Islam a defining feature of relating to India. Mm. It was India that constantly anxious about how the religious factor will play. Every silly resolution of the OIC would draw in the whole Indian system into outrage. Uh, but you've seen recently, uh, last week, I think, or a few days before that, uh, there was an Arab ministerial meeting uh, with the Chinese. Uh, the word Uyghur was not mentioned. So this idea somehow, you know, that everyone is viewing the world through religious prism, you know, there are, everybody has problems, you know, everybody has issues. So nobody has a single issue is not going to drive anyone. So, so I think religion is important. And I think the way we deal with our minorities will have an effect. And therefore, for India, on its own reasons that it needs to have a, a, a tolerant society that, uh, you know, at peace with itself on, on, on terms that are everyone likes, but we should not let that color our engagement with the rest of the world. I mean, this is a complicated thing, but I don't want to go too far into it. But the fact is that today the region is looking to partners. The American centrality to the region is coming to an end. Therefore, the kind of role we ought to play in the region that transcends some of the older questions, but it also restores some of the older questions. Uh, we've transcended, I think, once the India-Pakistan gap has increased, today it's no longer the Pakistan question in the Gulf. That the countries are willing to have autonomous, independent relationship with India. Uh, it's no longer the defining feature of their worldview about India. So it should not be part of India's calculation. And that today uh, they're looking for security cooperation. They're looking for technological cooperation. Uh, UAE would have loved if we could have launched their Mars mission. Uh, but they went to, all the way to Japan. South Korea has built their uh, space center. So there are huge possibilities but I think one that is open for pragmatic, realistic, uh, uh, you know, mutually beneficial engagement. And I think it is that change that we need to, and for which we need to shed a lot of the old ideological shibboleths uh, that tended to dominate uh, our thinking on the Middle East. So, uh, Srirad, I'll stop here then. Thank you. Uh, I think the big questions that you raised and the, you know, it, I, it was fascinating for all of us. I mean, not only just me, and I think all of them have benefited tremendously. So can you see the chat box? Let me just, you know, try and pick up um, about uh, Pratik's asking about how is India too preoccupied with Iran and it's ignoring the other Arab countries, uh, while China's, of course, making certain great forays. Uh, you know, each one is kind of related. Do you want me to club a few for you? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so that's one. Then... Um, I think related to that, Mudassar is asking whether India can remain aloof from the regional geopolitics. 
uh, while it increases its engagement with the region, how far being on the sidelines serves Indian interest. And I think that's something which you also alluded to. Have we moved away from the past links with the Gulf? And please, what forces? Please, one at a time. Okay, so let's let's do that. Okay. Which one? Which one? The first one. Let's, one. India preoccupied with Iran just now, and is it ignoring the Arab countries uh, like Look, South Korea? When I argued this yesterday in the Express, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, the government is engaging. The government is dealing daily with what's happening in the Gulf. But I think it's really the uh, foreign policy elite's discourse that makes uh, somehow Iran is so central. Well, actually, uh, no paper, I don't see that any of them covered the UAE space launch. Or uh, unless there is a crisis in the Middle East, we don't pay attention. Uh, do we? Unless there's some Indians have to come back. Uh, looking for support. I mean, we, we're not paying enough attention as a, as a collective. It's not the problem with the government. I think uh, they're dealing with, in fact, what's a dramatic change in the last few years is the uh, intensity of India's engagement today with the UAE uh, and with the Saudis today uh, on counterterrorism cooperation, on, on a whole range of issues today. The dramatic change in the actual government policy. What has not changed is the public debate the elite debate, these academic debate, I think that needs to catch up. Uh, so that is where the, the, the problem is and not the governments are dealing with it on a, on a, on a continuous basis. But it's we've not uh, kept a pace, I think, uh, with, yeah. the, with the changes. I think there are, if you want to say, for example, on Iran, if you want business, there's more than enough business in the Middle East, in the, in the Arab Middle East. Are we doing enough? So it is, are we talking about we need Iran because we need business, then the, the whole world is open for business. But is business really about proving our friendship to Iran, which is under sanctions? So those are the issues. But I think where we conflate, continues to conflate, you know, are we with the Americans or the Iranians? If you frame it like that, uh, you're missing the point because there are other contradictions between Iran and its neighbors. Iran is under sanctions. Uh, as they say in, in Hindi, North India, if it's raining outside, I mean, you don't wear white clothes and walk into the dirt. This idea somehow India has a responsibility to even invite sanctions to continue with Chabahar. I think that makes uh, India has actually got an exemption from the Americans for the Chabahar and the railway line. It is Iranians who are saying, look, let's have an IRGC company which is sanctioned into the project. So the Iranians can change. I mean, if they change, look, the project will go ahead. But I think we're not, you know, we're trapped in each minor issue gets elevated into an ideological argument. And I think that is uh, part of the Part of the problem, but the government is doing things with the, with the Arab side. But we need to do a lot more. As I said, uh, so much is happening in the region. Region is changing. Uh, for example, the whole the whole new attempt at moving towards high tech, the creation of a new city in Saudi Arabia called Neom, uh, the setting up of the new centers of innovation in, in UAE. Look at the number of universities in UAE, uh, NYU, New York universities there. French universities are there, you know. But here, they were begging us to give us an IIM. Yeah. And, you know, the Indian HRD made it as if it is a crown jewel, you give it away. I mean, you could have set up an off-campus because most Indians would have used it there. But I think we've not fully, you know, seized the opportunities for uh, what we can do in the region. So uh, I think that kind of also answers Mudas's question. So, but I just wanted you to delve on this. Whether do you see uh, India's competing with China in the region? I mean, how do you see that? Look, I think China is a new player in the Gulf and the Middle East. Look, we've been around for much longer. So, for us, even to put ourselves in a position, we have to compete with the Chinese. I can understand you saying that in East Asia, where China is a natural center of East Asia, and you say, okay, Southeast Asia too. I mean, they're sitting right there. Uh, but to talk about competition with them. In, uh, uh, in, uh, in Gulf, I think, but the fact is today, uh, we didn't take fully the opportunities. They're a player today, they're there. So they've come, but you look, we have our own relationships. We have our own linkages, build on what you have. You don't need China to do more business with the Gulf. I mean, you know, if you again go back to the, you know, the British period history, I think you had the Indian Sindhis, Indian, you know, Marwadis, Indi everywhere, the whole Indian, you know, trading elite at such deep links with the Middle East. Mr. Ambani and his family, I mean, they, where did they come from? They came from selling oil in Aden. Mm. Aden was part of India, of course, till 1937. So that you had these linkages. I mean, you don't need China's entry. Oh my God, today Chinese are here, therefore I'm competing. But they've been asking you for a long time. So do what you can. I mean, you don't need 
the China factor. There are independent bases for working with them, just as in South Asia, geography is still closer to us. So we can do more things on our own steam and our own interest and in partnership with our other, other friends. Uh, okay, Professor Shravuni is asking, is, what is your perception of engagement in the context of geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific? Do you see that? No, look, Indo-Pacific is the other side. I mean, I think today, you know, like all definitions, or today it also includes, I mean, the east coast of Africa uh, and the Indian Ocean is part of it. But, but you know, Indo-Pacific is there, but, you know, we don't need uh, the Indo-Pacific framework. The, the Middle East, we've dealt with them for through history. So the thing is, look, and even in the Indo-Pacific, those of us who argued for Indo-Pacific, you know, against a lot of resistance, it is divided into a number of sub-regions. So the question is, the Gulf, within the Middle East too, there are, you know, there's Levant, there is, uh, uh, you know, there is the Gulf. So you, you, it's not as if the, everything can be fixed into one framework. So in the Middle East, there's a Gulf, there is uh, other conflicts that are going on in the, in the Mediterranean side. The, you have the Middle East extends all the way to uh, North Africa. So, so there are different sub-regions. So it is, uh, how do we relate and engage with them uh, on the base of our own interests, rather than we don't need to bring the Indo-Pacific into this debate. But on the maritime side, yes, we can work with the French. We are working with them in the Western Indian Ocean. Hopefully we do things with the Americans. But uh, uh, French are also present in the Gulf. They have a base in the, uh, in the United Arab Emirates. So there are a whole lot of possibilities. But you don't need the Indo-Pacific framework as a whole to deal with okay. the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, somebody wants to know, how would you list the three priority countries for India in the region? Look, I mean, is is, you know, there's no point getting into that. Is it really? See, look, everybody has different, you know, everybody brings different things to the table. I mean, uh, for example, in Iran, that is not in under sanctions. In Iran, that is in a reasonable uh, engagement with the U U.S., Europe, will be different. Iran, we know Shah of Iran, right? But we didn't like Shah of Iran because he was part of Seattle Center, whatever it is. So, so we didn't like him. Uh, he was secular also, but uh, that was a, because he was part of the RCD, he was part of the Baghdad Pact, that's the collaboration uh, with, the, with the American alliances. But, but I think, uh, so the, this idea, so if you go by, you go by the density population, you know, if you take those metrics, Egypt uh, and Israel, sorry, Iran, stand out big. Uh, Turkey, of course, uh, is today going through a phase where the contradictions between India and Turkey have sharpened uh, in the last uh, few years. They support to brotherhood uh, and they support to Pakistan as quite a whole new ideological dimension. Previously, it was merely uh, army to army type of relationship. So we have problems there. And then UAE, you know, country of 2 million people, but it has huge number of Indian population. And the kind of things you can do there, you can't do in some other countries. So nobody is asking you to choose priorities. Nobody in the Middle East is telling you, please don't deal with Iran, don't deal with us, or deal with Mike. They're not saying, they're saying, do more with me. Each one of them is saying, please do more with me. Why into showing up? Why into visiting? That it took, no prime minister visited between 81 when Indira Gandhi went to UAE and then Modi goes in 2015. Is that reasonable for 35 years for no Indian prime minister goes to UAE? Mr. Manmohan Singh, 10 years, four visits to the Middle East, out of which two were for non-aligned summits, one in Iran, one in Egypt. And in between one trip, two trips, maybe once to Qatar and one to Saudi and Oman or whatever it is. I mean, that is, I mean, as they say, 90% of the game is to show up. We were not even showing up in the region. <laughs> Our people were showing up in the region, but we were not, the political leaders were not showing up. Because it was treated as some, you know, difficult, complicated place. Let's not get into the middle. But, but the, uh, so I think how the game is, if we even appear there, uh, everyone in the region wants to do more with us. And we do what we need to do with everyone. Um, about the security cooperation, which you also mentioned, uh, you know, there is this talk about India, I think, about being the net provider. I mean, there's a question about how do you think in the post-Galwan phase, do you think there's a, you know, Credibility has diminished in that context. No, no, I see, look, India has had many wars. And if every war is diminishing, you know, it is not even a war. This is just one clash. I mean, I don't think it diminishes, actually. Some people say, look, you stood up to the Chinese. I mean, if I'm in Singapore, people say, look, nobody's even willing to, you know, look up the, at the Chinese. But India has, has fought. So, so it's, it's, it's really, we shouldn't get too preoccupied with that kind of an analysis. Uh, people want help. Those who want help, uh, 
you know, will get where it where it comes from. Is look, Ajibuti is saying, look, come, everybody is welcome. You want to pay and get a base. So he's not the guy who runs Djibouti has no other resource except location. So he's selling the location. So so he's not saying, okay, how many people did India lose or how many people did Indian army kill the Chinese? And I think this is our self-referential worries. Look, everybody has problems of their own. They're looking for partners and friends. And, and I think we should really reach out and meet those uh, wherever it is possible for us. Um, do you think Kashmir is an issue in the Middle East policy anymore? Is that relevant? <laughs> look, if we make it an issue, it becomes an issue. No, look, everybody, look, we, look, OIC, Turks will keep raising it. But after all, you had the UAE extend the kind of support which you never expected from a country that was supposed to be pro-Pakistan. So nobody's made a big noise. You know? Nobody's making a big noise, so except Turkey and Qatar because of their alliance on the... Nobody else and this side, Malaysia and the East. No Muslim country. Look, everybody has problems of their own. You know? that, that it is as if this idea somehow the Middle East is only about religion. I, mean, I think it's fundamental misreading of societies, of kingdoms, of you know countries and their interests. Look, the oil is market is tanking. Those guys are interested. Look, uh, how do we do our business? What do we do in a post-oil future? There is conflict with Iran. So how do you deal with the Iranian question? Turkey is trying to muscle in into the former colonial territories of the Arabs. So Kashmir, you know, we think is only somehow the problem. Or Pakistan would like to make it, but I don't think anybody is buying that proposition somehow. Uh, you know, Kashmir is one issue that keeps everybody awake in the night. It doesn't. So once in a while, if they're compelled to make a statement, they'll make a statement. But, you know, how does it matter to us when they're doing more bilateral business, they're doing more security cooperation? So, so I think we should focus on that rather than thinking is Kashmir a big issue. Okay, fine. Uh, there are a couple of questions about Turkey. Do you think that, you know, this little unstable relation that you also referred to is going to impact India's aspiration there in the region? Look, Turkey is one player, you know, it's a big region, there are multiple players, uh, it's uh, free for all now. So I don't think, it, in fact, what it demands is we do more with Egypt, okay. we do okay. more with Saudis, we do more with UAE, because they're looking for friends who can help them and not leave it as, a, as an internal thing out there. So, so it gives, actually gives us huge amount of opportunities to, to, to engage with the region. Uh, there's a question also with the space program, which you also referred to just now yourself, that why India was not able to partner that. But do you see some some collaboration like this coming up in future? I mean, do you think India is tuning itself there? No, I think if you go to UAE and see Abu Dhabi, for example, I mean, it's, lotly, it's mostly Indians no, who are running, like in the US, who is running the tech companies? It is Indians, right? I mean, it was IBM, you know, Google or Microsoft. So the Indian manpower is going there is for the first time now, the Chinese companies have showed up in a big way in the last five years, uh, WeChat and uh, Tencent, everybody's in the Gulf. Because they're trying to take advantage. But you have natural advantages, we have not paid attention. Now tomorrow, for example, when PMN to UAE second time or third time, uh, Rupee card, okay, UAE is the first one to say, look, okay, we're happy to have it here, like Singapore has accepted it. So countries are ready to engage. It's, it's really how much Many countries are looking to say, look, uh, the other kind of databases, how do we develop them? How can we use them? There again, it's Indian hesitations that tend to limit what we can do. But on the digital side, uh, it's a, a sky is the limit. Uh, most, most countries in the region would want India's help, but, but we're not able to deliver on the official, the government side, while what happens is really at the company to company or business to business. And, and if we can facilitate that more, we can, there's a lot. Um, Hans, there are lots of other questions, but I thought I'll just invite Kumar here to come in. I'm sure he wants to add and say a few things. Uh, uh, let others continue. I'll just finish. Let others continue. Um, anybody else wants to intervene? Mudasar? I can see Professor Pant also. Mudasar, you want to say something? No, no, I, I already had asked my question. Yeah, which, which is yes, there, yeah. already answered, okay. so nothing more. Um, so there's just a few, two minutes, three, four minutes left. So in case somebody else wants to from the group ask him something specific. 
because we've kind of covered more or less i'm not going to him individually but i think more or less all the questions seem to be covered with his uh, have been Yes, Pratik, you want to say? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, like post-COVID, uh, post as we do not have financial resources to invest in the Middle East, so how are we going to cope with China in terms of investment? Because it, it's it's all it's all a game of investment, sir. So, how do we compete? It's not about competing with China, but in order to uh, progress our relations with the Middle East, how are we going to deal with the Middle East part? Given the uh, condition that we are, uh, you know, we don't have enough financial resources to invest. So how do you see this game, sir, moving ahead? Look, I'm not a finance guy, but, you know, you talk to some economists, type, but at least problem, they don't have problem of money. They want technology. They're not saying, UA is not saying, you know, bring your money to do space program. He's saying, look, you have the manpower, you have experience. I can put the money, you help me do it. So money is only one part, I think. I mean, so it's not really that, you know, government of India might have no money, but the Ambani's are money. Or your private sector has money. So its question is, can we design policies that will facilitate greater economic cooperation, which is uh, which is what is needed. Not They're not looking at India to bring money there. I mean, money is not the problem, at least in the oil-rich countries. In, so in Egypt, yes, they need someone with resources to come and invest. There the Chinese make a big difference with the BRI. Are building this big Suez, uh, uh, you know, whole new city. I think on the on the Suez. And, uh, so that that level where you you can't compete, but you can partner with other countries. There again, I mean, uh, so you don't have to do the same things the Chinese do. It, there are other areas where you can you can contribute. <clears throat> if I can ask a question, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. You, you you mentioned that the, while the government is engaging with the region at, at different levels, but the foreign policy community is not looking at the things or at least they are lagging behind. They are not in keeping in pace with the, uh, the engagement of the government. How do you explain this? Because, you know, this should be normally the other way around. Okay, we should be more following rather than the government taking a secondary step. At least in the Gulf and the Middle East, it seemed to be other way around. How do you explain this? No, it's, it's generally been true. You know, if you look at last thirty years, where uh, where Indian policy was changing, I think a lot of the initiatives have come from the government. And most of the time, the think tanks in Delhi, all my friends and colleagues, or the universities, like we said, nuclear deal, don't do it. You'll be killed. You vote against Iran in the IAEA, Indian foreign policy is finished. It is end of India's strategic autonomy. It is the death of India's nuclear program. I mean, we were actually hyping it up into some kind of a collapse because uh, outsiders actually were resisting change. I mean, are saying, don't do it. Uh, very few times, I mean, did when uh, Vajpayee did the Srinagar bus, or uh, sorry, Manmohan Singh did the Srinagar bus, entire think tanks, you know, I said, oh, no, 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 don't do it. The bus will be very bad. Let's not do it. It is the politicians. I mean, when Vajpayee, Manmohan Singh, or even Modi going to Pakistan, the political leaders have shown the capacity to say, look, let's find a new way of dealing with the problem. But it's really we, you know, where you think there is a red line, where you think actually only this can be done and something else can't be done. So it's not, so look, we are not in positions, we don't make policy. But, but in fact, we should be freer to say, look, this direction is not good, or that direction is good, or go in this direction, which is better for you. So it's never, very few prescriptions are made, very few analysis. It's always said, don't do it. Don't do anything new, uh, which has been the, the mantra of uh, the so-called foreign policy community, which stay three steps behind the government rather than even getting one step ahead uh, of, the, uh, of the government. I think, uh, uh, so, so I think that, so it's, I think it's really a problem of the intellectual class of how we think about foreign policy and that we're not, we can do what we want. But I think, uh, or too much of constrained by, you know, the bigger debates or is Nehru versus Modi or that kind of stuff, while actually not looking at it operationally, look, where are we going wrong in the Middle East? Mm -hmm. Why didn't we do more? Or scholarship, we should go back and look, look, did India miss something in 1971 when the British were saying they're going to leave east of Suez? Mm -hmm. uh, and the Indian Ocean, 68, the left started leaving Singapore, you know, many parts of the Indian Ocean gave independence to the Gulf. 
and our own Maldives got independence in 71. Did we see, did we see the consequences correctly? Did, was there a moment for us to have done with it differently? So I think, you know, we not even forget the think tanks and the policymakers, the university community should at least say, look, look at the archival work, look at, uh, you know, how did India react to 68, the British withdrawal from east of Suez? Mm. When we used to say, uh, you know, great power competition will go and the UN will solve Indian Ocean problem or Indian Ocean is zone of peace. You know, so were we even intellectually, I mean, I think now today you can't undo what, what we did. But at least you guys like you, you should be studying and say, look, what happened between 68 and 71? Did India, what was the debate in 68 to 71? Or for that matter, uh, you know, today even how we think about 56 in Suez, after all, Nehru and Eisenhower were on the same side. It was Israel, France and Britain who were on the other side. So I think we're not even doing enough of our own past, the complexity of how India thought about the region. So there's a lot of work people like you scholars can do in terms of the archival work or the historical uh, contextualization that can actually help uh, think afresh about the region uh, rather than in a standard, uh, you know, uh, stereotypical terms that have become, uh, that have become uh, so, so, so common. Um, I think we have crossed the time, but I can see Ambassador Sanjay Singh here and I think I did see Professor Detail. Would you want to say something? Sure. There's an audio, audio issue. I think it's too fast, uh, Sanjay. It's too fast. Your, I think switch off and switch off. You're muted now. Till he, till he comes back. Um, there's somebody who wants to know about Chabahar and whether that's had an impact on Afghanistan's isolation, India pulling out, and you know, how this you've been writing about it. I think. Look, I mean, look, I think Chabahar as a port uh, getting us you know, stuck into, into, into Western Afghanistan is an important thing. But if anybody thinks Chabahar is going to just survive on what India is going to send biscuits and tea into Afghanistan, I mean, I think no port can run like that. So it needs, and the problem is, look, as long as Iran is under international sanctions, the economic complication is going to go. If Iran and India want to get across something into the region, it's fine. You can do it and having a road matters, but the road needs traffic. A port <laughs> needs business. It just can't be done by you know, drawing lines on the map and say we have a strategic uh, commonality of interest. And it's not so clear Iran's relationship with the Taliban. It's no longer, after all, one of the guys who was bombed and killed in the border was, he was coming from Iran. So Iran being a neighbor has complicated stakes in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. so, so I think by our experience of the late 90s, when we said we and the Iranians were on the same side, yes, in that period, would the conditions apply in the next period? We don't know. So we should not objectify that one circumstance and therefore, but look, there are other people who have influence on Pakistan and Afghanistan. Qatar today is hosting them, for good or bad. Uh, you have all said and done, the UAE and the Saudis are still very influential in Pakistan and Afghanistan and with the Taliban. Mm. So it's not that Iran is the only factor that's going to help or define the outcomes in, 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 uh, in Afghanistan. It's not true. We can work with them, great. But right now, they're in such messy situation that limits the possibility for everyone, not just for us, for the Chinese, for the world, for the Europeans who are eager to do business with them. So, so that is their problem, and, and we can't solve that problem. Uh, Ambassador Singh, is it better? Shall you try? Let me see. Yes, can you yes. hear me? Yes, yeah, perfect. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Raja, it's always a pleasure listening to you. You bring a breath of fresh air into our thinking. And I think it's been very useful for all the audience here, especially the young people. Your advice that we should re-examine, re-look at each stage of what we did and what, why we did it. Because it's very important that the academic community 
produces work which politicians, government, diplomacy can look at and take forward our policy. So thank you very much. And your, we can have arguments about how you think about the region and what we did and what we did not. But we can never have arguments that what you said is not interesting. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sanjay. Wonderful seeing you in <laughs> I, I'll just second that and I think it was absolutely wonderful again for somebody who doesn't follow the region so closely the depth that you brought and the large questions that you made me look at I think it's fascinating I'm just going to uh, hand this over to the host uh, Kumar do you step in here okay yeah but it's, it's such a privilege to have you here Professor Rohan. thank you thank you Sridhar um, uh, thank you Sridhar and you know uh, if all of you will agree that one of the great thing about Professor Rajamohan is that is uh, out of the box thinking and always provocative even somebody who studies a subject for 40 years, you can listen to Raja Mohan sir, and then you'll always come up with something new and different and fresh. You know, in life, sometimes you like a person, some you admire, some you respect. I think Raja Mohan sir is one of the very few persons you like, admire, and also respect. Thank you very much. It's a great Thanks. to listen to you. Great to listen to you. Thank, Thank you. you. It's wonderful uh, seeing you and all your colleagues and wishing you all wonderful. Thanks. Thanks. All the best for, Thanks. The, for the Thanks. center, which is which is doing phenomenal work. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.